So there is some crazy drama going down in Seattle right now. And as an urban tech junkie, I'm totally glued to it. So wait, what's the story? Is it another Amazon HQ2 thing? Actually, this is one Seattle tale that's not about Amazon. It's about this relatively small startup called Rentberry. It lets landlords list apartments to rent, and then it lets renters create a profile and then bid on these apartments. This company launched in San Francisco back in 2016, and it was big news. The pundits were all over it. Rhett Jones from the tech site Gizmodo wrote that it was the startup of your nightmares. Even City Lab's Kristen Capps wrote that it was, quote, designed to eliminate any uncertainty about who's getting screwed by the rental housing market. But still, Rentberry stayed alive, kept chugging along, and things were looking up until it came to Seattle. Some students at the University of Washington got worried that it would jack up rental prices for them, which were already really unaffordable there. And before Rentberry had even 10 apartments listed on their website, the city council unanimously passed a law shutting it down for two years so they could study its potential impacts. What? (laughs) Yeah, here, I'll play you the tape from one of the city council hearings. Listen to what they had to say. Obviously, you you can't just let people have a bidding war, even if we weren't bursting at the seams with housing. It's just something just about it ain't right. This is what my my fear is. We have the whole Uber nightmare. Do a moratorium on this type of platform for a short period of time, 12 months, and then figure out if there's regulations that are needed. After this Uber thing and after what we dealt with Airbnb, we've learned a lot. I I know you have, I have. Let's just be honest here. Do we just not want to have this? Are you asking us to prohibit or regulate and... I want to this is air on this side. One of the most important equity issues mm-hmm. that has come in Perfect. front of us. It puts people who have resources at the top of the pack. Right now, it just strikes me as being so grossly unfair. Mm-hmm. Do we just not want to have this? I find that to be such a surprisingly direct question. I get the city council feels burned by their experiences with Uber and Airbnb, and they're understandably concerned about equity issues. But prohibit, shut down? That's quite a preemptive strike. Based on my experience at Airbnb, I actually could have predicted this reaction. And to be frank, I had a similar reaction myself when I first learned about Rentberry, but I really didn't think any city would go this far. Imposing a two-year moratorium, it's basically a business killer. And I question whether Seattle had any legal grounds to essentially ban a business from operating in their city. That's exactly what Rentberry thought, and that's why they sued. In fact, the court's decision is due out any day now, but the story is much bigger than Rentberry in Seattle. It brings up all these other questions, like how can cities know for sure what the impact of this tech will be if it's barely operating in the market? And why are people reacting to it in such a big way? Right. And what is it about tech meddling in housing that provokes such an emotional reaction? We're going to dig into all those questions on today's episode, Tech Lash City. Welcome to Technopolis, where technology is disrupting, remaking, and sometimes overrunning our cities. I'm Jim Capsis. I was a climate negotiator in the Obama administration, and now I advise tech startups. And I'm Molly Turner. I teach urban innovation at the Berkeley Haas School of Business, and I was the first policy person at Airbnb. Today, we're going to investigate the Rentberry saga, when Seattle shut down the company after it barely opened up shop in the city. 
We'll leave the question of whether the city had the right to shut it down to the federal courts. Instead, we'd rather ask, why did so many people have such a visceral reaction to this website? Are we getting buyer's remorse for all our past techno-optimism? And we'll explore the unexpected impacts when tech charges into the most important parts of our society, like housing. We'll start by talking with Desiree Fields from the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom. She's an expert on the ways digital platforms are changing our relationship with real estate. We'll also talk with Nick Carr, the acclaimed author of many books chronicling the unforeseen ways that technologies are messing with our brains and society at large. But first, I want to go way back to 1995. Uh, I think maybe you were in middle school, (laughs) Mal. That's the year that eBay first came out. And you know what? People loved it. I mean, they would cancel plans just so they wouldn't lose a bid. I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) So why wouldn't the reaction be the same with RentBerry? Don't people bid on housing all the time? I mean, I'm not a homeowner like you are, but isn't that how it works? It's a bidding competition. It is exactly how it works. You're, you're definitely bidding when you're trying to buy a house. But there's something about bringing this tech transaction into rental housing that makes it different. And Desiree's just the person to explain that to us. I spoke with her recently, and I think you're going to really dig her work, Jim. She's an expert on housing tech and coined the term automated landlords. So it's like a robot landlord. Kind of. I mean, I think it's important to remember there's always people, right? Yeah. Um, People behind the machines. Yeah, there's always people behind the machine or corporations behind the machine in the case of of the work I've been doing recently. But it's a way to think about, so not only platforms kind of mediating that relationship, but how do those technologies that we've seen come out over the past, you know, decade-ish or a little bit more, things like cloud computing, mobile computing, all kinds of new analytics, artificial intelligence, how do those technologies come to um, play a bigger role than just kind of a mediating technology? So what's different about that than what how people have done things before? The cell is around making real estate investment more efficient and more transparent. Would you consider Rentberry or Bidwell, these rental bidding websites, to be automated landlords? Is this kind of part of the same trend you're seeing? I think it's part of the same trend. I mean, they're obviously they're not landlords in the sense that they don't own the properties, right? But they provide a way for the landlords who list properties on their site to work in automated ways. Mm. So I think they're, they're part of the kind of overall trend of, of the way that these technologies are kind of increasingly governing the relationships between landlords and tenants. So Seattle famously shut down RentBerry right after RentBerry launched. Do you think they did the right thing? I think there's a good reason to think about sites like RentBerry with caution. And the reason that I say that is because Rentberry was um, strategic about where they decided to roll out, right? Mm. And so if you look at the geography of, like, the cities that Rentberry has rolled out in, you know, they started in San Francisco. They tried to open up in Seattle. They tried to move to Sydney. They're active in London. Hot um, markets. They're in hot markets. So what's wrong uh, with them launching in the hot markets? What does that tell you? It tells me that exploiting overheated rental markets is at the core of their business model. Right. So when we're operating in an acute rental affordability crisis in cities, not only in the U.S., but across the world, I'm not sure that, you know, that platforms whose core business model is designed to exploit those dynamics is is going to be beneficial for society. Why do you think some of these new tech platforms like Rentberry and Bidville elicit such strong reactions from city leaders and from residents? 
the idea that we would be then bidding on rents that people are already quite ill-equipped to afford at this point is, mm-hmm. I think, repugnant to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know the idea that a business would be doing anything to encourage people to bid over rents that you know are already stretching people's budgets really thin is just kind of difficult to comprehend. You know, with something like enthusiasm, <laughs> it's yeah. hard to feel. It's hard to feel excited in a good way about that for most people who are contending with you know with the rental markets in these places. Some of these automated landlord websites, like Rentberry, kind of shine a light on the existing inequities in these housing markets. Do you think that shutting these websites down actually does anything to solve that problem, or are there other things that city leaders should be focusing on to help address kind of the affordability problem? I'm not saying we should never think about regulations on technology, but from a regulation perspective, if we want to if we want to protect renters, um, so that platforms like Rentberry can't, you know, sort of worsen housing market conditions for renters, like why don't we just protect all renters um, rather mm. than the ones that might be affected by Rentberry, right? So I just think I think that policy solutions targeting the rental market are broader based, and therefore all tenants are more likely to benefit from them rather than the smaller group of people who might be interacting with Rentberry. I think to leave that to the market um, is a bit short-sighted because, like, markets move in cycles. There are booms, there are busts. And to expose this thing that is such a fundamental requirement to the vicissitudes of the market leaves people vulnerable. Do you think these automated landlord websites might actually be able to help us in some places? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some, you know, there's really interesting applications, you know, that we could think about, you know, doing um, to kind of help people develop housing cooperatives, for example, or to help match people with Section 8 vouchers with housing units in areas that they want to live. Of course, you still have to think about the discrimination they often face from landlords. Mm -hmm. So again, like, none of these technologies are perfect on their own, but that could be a start. And then also, I just wanted to give a shout out to justfix.nyc which basically is an app that helps kind of walk tenants through the process of, like, what's all the evidence I need to collect to bring a case against my landlord in housing court? Like, what kind of pictures do I need? What kind of communication, you know, do we need to have had? And then it hooks them up with with legal aid. Yeah, that raises a really good point, which is technology is so often used to decentralize power or to take power Mm -hmm. from, you know, people who typically have it and give it to more people. and Yeah, and I guess, you know, the way that we interact with digital technologies, even though we have, like, social networks and all the rest of it, like, it can often be really individualizing. And I think that whole convenience thing, like, for the individual tenant, the automated landlord could be great because it's, like, it's slick, it's easy, it's fast, it's convenient, and we all live, you know, really busy lives. But that can also separate us off from, you know, other people who might be, for example, like, tenants of the same landlord. And so, any sort of use of platforms and big data and all of that to help better connect tenants, I think can be really beneficial because the sort of power imbalance between landlords and tenants, tenants working together collectively as a group um, can put pressure on not only on landlords, but also on policymakers to create change. Um, And so if we can use technology to do that, all the better. she pointed out, there's already an existing power imbalance in rental housing that tech might just make worse. But she also said it doesn't have to. It could be used to correct power imbalances, like that New York group that uses tech to help tenants that she described. Yeah. But I still wonder, how much does the messenger matter here? I bet that if a trusted brand like eBay or Craigslist started a housing auction, the reaction would have been much more muted. 
after Uber and Lyft, there's something about being the new tech guy on the block that I think maybe invites mistrust. Like, I've seen this movie before, and I didn't like it the first time. (laughs) I agree that those factors might make a difference, but I think there are some inherent characteristics of tech that do make us squeamish, and there might be really good reason for that. Nick can help us understand these feelings better. He's the guy who first said, Google is making us stupid. I call it Google brain. (laughs) Yeah, Google brain. Let's get his take on the darker side of tech and how to protect ourselves from it. There was this tech lash in Seattle last year over a startup in the housing market called Rentberry. How do you respond to a situation like that? Is that the, the right kind of reaction to tech coming into a market when you're not sure what the consequences might be? I think it is. And, and it, it goes against the American grain in some ways to to say slow down or stop and let's think about this. But I do think it's an entirely reasonable way to to approach these because what the the tech companies are trying to sell us is going to have unintended consequences and and you can certainly imagine it for for something like rental properties where a lot of cities are struggling with with having enough affordable housing uh, you see it with ride sharing apps like Uber and Lyft that the tech companies say oh this is going to relieve traffic in it sometimes can simply by making it easier to grab a car rather than walking or taking the subway or something that can actually increase traffic and congestion. So that's a great example, Nick, because like with Uber and Lyft, I don't know that anyone would have known what the impacts on congestion would be until they were at scale. Like we didn't know what the human reaction would be, you know, whether they would actually prefer to take an Uber over transit until they were in the market. So how do we predict these things when we don't have models to do that? It's a tough problem because Mm -hmm. sometimes you have to implement these things to learn what the problems might be. But I do think I do think in general that stepping back and thinking more carefully will at least help us identify some of the the problems. So as they begin to manifest themselves, cities or governments can act more quickly. And is there something inherent in these technology platforms that we're afraid of, how they're designed or how we talk, the the people who built them talk about them that scares us? You know, until recently, I would have said no. We tend to be very enthusiastic about them. You can see the way people use their phones. They're in love with them. (laughs) They use them compulsively. (laughs) We have a very special relationship. I've named my phone. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think that in the last couple of years, as more problems have become manifest, that people are getting a little more suspicious about, you know, who's controlling these things. Why is it giving me this information? Why is it forcing me to to do these processes as they're programmed? You know, there's also the question of engagement and disengagement. I think as more and more things get done through computer screens, they disengage us from the the social processes that many people would argue are are the heart and soul of a city and of an urban experience, going out and dealing with other people. Sometimes it's messy, but Sometimes you learn things. Sometimes you have new experiences. You write about this concept called the substitution myth. Can you tell us what that's about? Yeah, the substitution myth is a concept that scholars of automation have identified. And basically what it says is we believe that we can hand over part of a job or part of a task to a computer 
Um, and it will just substitute, the computer will just substitute for that particular task, but won't change the nature of the work uh, in the roles of people. And what the evidence suggests is that, in fact, even just automating a small part of a complex job or, or task changes a whole lot about it. Um, that we don't anticipate. It changes the way people do their work. It changes their engagement with the work and what role they take on. Even if you're just automating one part of something and you might think of it as a trivial part, you have to be aware that this could change much, much more. And it's hard to predict what that would be. There are kind of common themes uh, that have come out of the research, something called automation complacency. As soon as you bring a computer in, people tend to very much trust that the computer will do everything right all the time, so they stop paying attention. And there's also something that you see over and over again called automation bias. We naturally believe what comes out of a computer. We don't challenge that information sufficiently with our own knowledge, with what our own senses are telling us even. For instance, in the healthcare arena, a lot of radiologists now rely on computer software to interpret medical images, x-rays and, and so forth. And what happens is you, because all of these images are taken digitally now, it's very, very easy to run them through an algorithm. And the algorithms highlight areas that, that might be cancers or other areas of concern on the images. Um, and then the, the radiologist gets the image after it's already been marked up with highlights and everything. Everybody thought this would be great. And it turns out to have very, very mixed results uh, because what happens is that the, the radiologists, instead of focusing their own eyes and focusing their own experience on the image, just takes what the computer is telling them. Uh, his or her eyes are very much focused on the highlighted areas, and they end up missing cancers or, or, or other problems. Nick, is it quite so binary in the sense of like, is tech efficiency bad or is it just often misapplied? I think it can definitely be done well or be done poorly. And so for for instance, in this example, the radiologist, an alternative method that is beginning to be used as a result of these studies showing that this is problematic is simply to allow the radiologist to look at the image before it's run through the software. And so you get the benefit of the software's interpretation, but you don't bypass that very human expertise and experience. How can we build better technologies, Nick? I mean, do you think we should just give up on technology altogether? Or is there something we can do to, to build better technology for society? So I think the first thing is to distinguish between these different places where you can apply technology. Some areas are absolutely fine and we should probably rush ahead and we already know that we can do things better. But then there are the places where you might want people to interact. Uh, you might want uh, things to slow down. The, the kind of dominant design philosophy today is, is what is often called technology-centered design. And basically, that means you look at anything that people do and you say, what is it possible to have computers do instead of human beings? Mm -hmm. And then you hand over all of those tasks to computers. And I, I think this is the, the view that a lot of tech companies take. The, the other way to do it is much more centered on human talents and human fulfillment. And it says, look, what is valuable to society and to individuals in this process, in this field of whatever it might be? And how can we protect that and maybe even make it more human and, and give people even more opportunities to develop talents, but also bring in 
computers to aid that process, to aid the creation of of human talents and, and human fulfillment. You know, another aspect of this is that the more computerized everything becomes, the less people have to think about other people mm. <laughs> and the less shame they might feel about jacking up prices or, or rents. Or um, discriminating against someone. Or discriminating against someone because There's you can kind of- dehumanizing about it. The, the software becomes the kind of filter that removes you from any concern or care. You know, I think a lot of landlords probably have a bad reputation for a very good reason. And to kind of remove them further from the consequences of their actions or, or you know, having to feel or sense the consequences of their actions, it seems to me is a a dangerous trajectory to be on. So is there anything that gives you hope about the future, Nick? You know, technology is a two-edged sword. It, it can expand our opportunities or it can narrow them. And it all depends on how we approach it as individuals, but also as a society. And, you know, technological enthusiasm has a place for among inventors, among programmers, among entrepreneurs. But I think realism... <laughs> is much more, and even some skepticism, is much more the approach we should take as a society. And we shouldn't allow the technological enthusiasts to determine the course of technology because it's it's far too important in our lives than to cede control over this, this powerful force. more Technopolis coming right up, so stick around after the break. Desiree and Nick have helped me understand the situation a bit more deeply. I think Nick is right that the tech honeymoon period is just over. We're becoming increasingly aware that tech isn't always a net positive. Our addiction to our phones, which we may joke about, it's sort of the tip of the iceberg. The revelation that Facebook was hijacked by Russian bots to influence the presidential election, that's big, scary stuff. So I think we all need to be more vigilant as individuals, cities, technologists, because beneath the water, there is so much more we don't see and can't always predict. So we can't be tech fools rushing in anymore. Actually, I know this organization, the Media Network, it's run by the founder of eBay, and they created a guide for technologists called Ethical OS to help them anticipate their technology's impacts on society. I love what it says. Let me just quote. It says that we should spend more time dreading all the ways tech might possibly, perhaps, just maybe screw everything up. <laughs> I, I like that a lot. But, you know, it's not just the techies that need that. I think the cities need it, too. If the cities are worried about future impacts of tech, they shouldn't just say no. They can't be naysayers all the time. That's not being proactive. People need their city leaders to engage with tech and find new ways of protecting vulnerable communities without just shutting down innovation. I think we agree here, Jim, but that might not be a universal opinion because all the reasons Nick gave, a lot of folks would rather shut down the tech than risk the unintended consequences, even if they don't seem that bad. You know, talking to Nick made me keep thinking about the different philosophies to regulating business around the world, particularly to regulating the Internet. Here in the U.S., we have this anti-regulatory ethos. Even on the progressive side, they want to protect entrepreneurship and business growth unless we have absolute proof that it's going to do some kind of harm. 
But in Europe, there seems to be more of a philosophy of protecting individuals from the potential impacts of businesses, even if we don't know what they are yet. I mean, the sweeping data privacy rules they just passed are focused a lot more on protecting individuals from harm than on worrying about the impacts to the businesses it might kill. It kind of makes me question our default approach in the U.S. of putting business interests first. I don't think it has to be an either-or proposition, Molly. I think we can try to do both. Don't you think Seattle could have approached their concerns for Rentberry differently? There are a lot of other ways Seattle or other cities could react to a company like Rentberry. They could allow Rentberry to operate and just monitor it, like you suggested, maybe requiring the company to share data about their impacts on a regular basis. Or the city could stop being those parents who say no to everything and never let their kids out to play because they don't want them to get hurt. (laughs) What if they build a safe playground for them instead? Like, they could have allowed a pilot in a specific, less vulnerable neighborhood. That's a pretty common approach many cities are using right now. A pilot would also give the city data about what the impact actually is. You know, data can help them craft regulations later on, but also help them make their case in court. Which brings us back to Seattle. Whether the city wins this time or tech does, this really is just one shot fired at a much larger battle. Because this fight between tech and cities about when tech is solving problems and when it is exploiting them, that's not coming to a peaceful end anytime soon. But I hope tech can approach some of these sensitive arenas like housing with a little more caution and a little more empathy. And I hope that cities can approach the tech with a more solution-oriented approach in addition to their understandable caution. I think that's a very constructive note to end on. Well, thank you. Meet us back in Technopolis next week when we investigate how tech can help cities nudge people to improve outcomes in all aspects of urban life. Nudge, Molly. It's Nudge Tech. (laughs) All right. Nudge Tech is the next installment of Technopolis. Until then, I'm Molly Turner. And I'm Jim Capsis. Nicole Flato is the City Lab editor and our master of efficiency. Virginia Laura is our associate producer. And Lizzie Jacobs is our executive producer. Josh Rogeson is our engineer. Thanks to the City Lab staff for their insights, and to Roger Valdez, Igor Popov, Ritika Jane, Ken Rosen, Solomon Green, David Madden, Miriam Zook, Brett Waller, and Sean Martin. For more on TechLash Cities and other topics relevant to our urban lives, head to citylab.com. And don't miss out on a single episode. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. And tell a friend...